Hey friends, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. We have had our Patreon on hold for a while because we've been going through some major changes um, just in our own lives, in our own uh, thinking about God, the state, and, and, and all sorts of things. I'm still a mystic who loves Jesus and uh, the Tao, and yet today we're going to talk about something that is uh, going to take religion and, and, and look at it as a potential problem, uh, something that's dangerous, something that can work towards enslaving us, and not just in the religion, but it can enslave us by allowing an ideological framework to support an unjust economic system or to support authoritarian regimes. And to do this, we're going to look at a thinker named Mikhail Bakunin. Bakunin is a late 19th century anarchist thinker who opposed Karl Marx at the First International. So I'll talk a little bit about that. But the main thing here is I'm going to be looking at now not the spiritual anarchy of Jesus or Lao Tzu. That's what we've been talking about on prior episodes. But we're going to be looking at uh, atheistic anarchism. Some people think that the only kind of anarchism that really is worth the name is is a atheistic anarchism because of a common phrase that you'll see in anarchist circles, no gods, no masters. I'm gonna talk about uh, how there's some, there's some legitimacy to this concern about theism and God within, uh, within this quest for freedom, but I'll also talk about why I still uh, stick with this idea of spiritual anarchy uh, along with Stacy and the rest of the crew. Um, Today, it's just me because it's just a bunch of content and I'm hanging out here in the Delica. If you are not interested in a fire hose of content, maybe you skip this one and join us for a more free-flowing, casual conversation. Uh, that's certainly something that you might want to consider. But if you're ready to kind of stick with me and uh, kind of dig deep into some ideas and uh, some philosophy, well, I'm so glad you're with me. So let's go. So for today's show, we're going to be talking about God and the state. And this poster you might see from time to time in anarchist circles no gods, no masters. And the idea that maybe being religious at all, being spiritual at all, is a problem for somebody who wants to be fully free. And uh, this is really a follow-up from some of the other conversations we've had about what we might call spiritual anarchy. We talked about the uh, Taoist anarchists and the, the way that the ancient philosophical Taoists were skeptical about the state and the way of domination. Um, more recently, we did an episode where we talked about Jesus anarchy and the idea that the early followers of Jesus were indeed uh, really connected with this idea that there was an alternative kingdom to the, the system that we find ourselves in and the beast. And yet, most of the time since the 19th century, this idea of libertarian socialism uh, or anarchism as a philosophical, ethical, political idea, uh, it almost always came 
in the form of atheistic anarchy. Of course, there are exceptions, Tolstoy being a very good exception as a kind of rationalistic Christian anarchist. Tolstoy is operating around the same time in the late 19th century. But in the 19th century, you get this idea of no gods, no masters, the idea that religion itself, and specifically the religion of the West that is dominant in Europe, Christianity, is a problem. And it's a problem because it it supports, or it, it can support as an institution, as an ideology, um, the system of economics and politics that exploits and oppresses people. And therefore, for some of these thinkers, the only way to really be free is to also be free from God and free from religion. Uh, Bakunin is uh, somebody who lived from 1814 to 1876, and he was a contemporary of Karl Marx and, and had a rivalry with Karl Marx. And in many ways, he represents in, in my world a, a positive uh, force in, in the political realm and a positive force that recognizes some of the important insights that the communists would have, but also the ways in which Marxism, especially as it would uh, play out in the Russian Revolution, is oppressive itself. That is, um, this idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat, this idea that uh, is in Marxism and in Lenin and then in Stalin, uh, what, what uh, the anarchists call the, the tankies, uh, they, they, they had this ideology that the only way to get from the world of oppressive capitalism into a state of peace and anarchy would be to pass through a moment of the dictatorship of the proletariat, where you have a vanguard of party officials, people who are helping people to be free, teaching peasants to truly be emancipated, but doing it with violence, doing it with coercion. In other words, this idea that people have to be forced to be free. Well, Bakunin comes along, and, uh, and this is at this, uh, this association meeting of the International Workingmen's Association. It's called the First International, and it took place from 1864 to 1876. This First International, it's called, is where Bakunin and Marx end up not seeing eye to eye about the role of power and coercion and the state. And, uh, and therefore, um, he, he is very accurate and predicts, uh, Bakunin does, predicts the problems that would come, and indeed they did come, when the communists would take over countries and uh, really leave them in no better shape than they got them. So to Bakunin, Bakunin is an interesting character in all of this, and he's an advocate of what's called collectivist anarchism. And collectivist anarchism is basically a blend of individualist and collectivist perspectives within anarchist thought. Um, and despite the name, um, it's not exclusively collectivist. Um, the idea is that you had in the 19th century folks that were libertarian, and, and the term libertarian would be used really for all of them, but the libertarians that we know in America tend to be individualist libertarians, people that are interested in uh, kind of having their own autonomy, their own sovereignty within their own little private property. Uh, the collectivists are not as interested in 
uh, private property and private ownership. Um, so they, the collectivist anarchists like Bakunin advocated for the abolition of the state, but also the abolition of uh, private ownership. And the idea was that the workers, after forcibly taking the means of production uh, in, say, the factories, um, these workers would abolish the money system. That's the idea. Uh, but unlike anarcho-communism, there would be compensation uh, for a job that was difficult and for the time invested. So there was at least some motivation to work hard and to do jobs that maybe people didn't want. That's a big problem of communism. Not everybody wants to, to do the, the messy, dirty jobs. And so there is some, some way in which uh, you have a little bit of individualism, but within a, a system that does take care of everybody and is supportive mutually of everyone's needs. Now, Bakunin, when he, uh, when he writes his book on God and the state, uh, which I think is, uh, kind, you know, is worth reading so you can see the, the perspective, especially uh, this atheistic perspective, especially if you are a person of faith, it's helpful for you to just listen to hear what religion sounds like to people who are concerned about oppression of the poor and the workers just to, to kind of see how the, the, the thing works. Because even if you say, hey, I believe in God and you continue to believe in God and you continue to believe in your religious tradition, it's still important to recognize so many ways in which Christendom ended up getting into a, a reliance or a, an unhealthy uh, relationship with the, the state. Uh, and really, I guess Christendom as a term, I think is best used for this unhealthy relationship between church and state, something that goes back to Constantine and then is reinforced during the time of Charlemagne. And you can see it all through the rest of Western history, even where in, in the English Reformation, the king of England ends up taking over the reins of the church. And so all of this seems very, very foreign, I would say, to the, the way of Jesus. And nonetheless, we cannot ignore the ways in which this reality is one that was was relatively unhelpful for the the teachings of Jesus to thrive within Western Europe, Europe, and, and Eastern Europe as well. Europe becomes Christian, and yet it defangs the message of Jesus. And I think, in many ways, that's what makes it so uh, diabolical. That is, that power takes on the the religious traditions of a culture, kind of like a mascot, but guts those religious traditions of anything that is freeing to people, or at least freeing to people in a concrete way in the material world, this world. In any case, Mikhail Bakunin, he writes this book, God and the State, and if you pick it up, you'll start seeing that he's on about this concept of idealism versus materialism. And he says that he is a materialist. This is really important because it means that he doesn't just have a problem with you know, religion in general. He's, he's got a problem with the ways in which idealism uh, as, a, as a philosophical perspective is problematic for, for people's freedom, right? I mean, it, it gets in the way of people's freedom. Uh, in any case, uh, materialism in the 19th century, this conversation uh, in a philosophical sense, was not about 
being materialistic, you know, like um, uh, Material Girl by Madonna. It's not like that. Um, materialism is also a core to Marxist perspectives. But basically what it's about um, is it rejects this idea of idealism where the world is shaped by our minds. That is, we start in idealism with with concepts and ideologies and theologies, and this shapes the world. Uh, and this was something that was, was pretty big in 19th century philosophical circles. The alternative materialism is the idea that our ideas are informed by the outside world. So how does this really work? Let's, let's just think about the, the Reformation era. A Marxist um, or materialist historiography, that is, uh, the, the way in which you might write history, that's what historiography means, it's just the writing of history, a Marxist historian will tend to say that the Protestant Reformation was really about economic material forces, but that people translated that into religious language. That's what materialism really is about. So when the peasants are rising up against the nobility and the landowners and they're doing it using gospel language or they're doing it using kind of radical Christian uh, philosophy and theology, what's really happening is they are trying to find a way to get free and they are, they are seeing it in spiritual ways. But ultimately, it's really just about money, production, empowerment, force, politics, right? It's all these material things. Um, when I was in grad school, this was opposed by my uh, advisor and Reformation scholar, uh, Alistair McGrath, who did a lot of work in the ideologies and the, the thought of the late medieval world and the Reformation. And he was somebody who grew up as a Marxist, but then ended up rejecting it. And he basically argues that if you think about the Reformation and you only see it in terms of politics and religion, uh, then you're going to miss out on something very important. And that is that during the 16th century, uh, all walks of life, uh, people from every echelon of society, really did take these religious ideas seriously. Or you could think about uh, another uh, professor that I ran into at Oxford, Dermot McCulloch. He has a very important uh, biography of Henry VIII. And uh, basically what Dermot McCulloch says with respect to Henry VIII, uh, and maybe I'm confused, maybe this was in his biography of uh, Cranmer, the, uh, the English uh, bishop who was, uh, the archbishop who, who was part of the English Reformation. In any case, in that context, uh, we find that Henry VIII, even though he was a naughty fella, really did take the religious worldview seriously in which he found himself, and uh, specifically with respect to his, uh, his heir. He thought at one point that maybe he shouldn't marry his dead brother's wife, and then maybe he should, and he saw both of these things in the Bible, and this uh, concerned him. He thought maybe he was being cursed at one point in his life for perhaps not following biblical standards for marriage and so forth. The point being, um, I think for the, the historian, it's important to recognize both of these things, that Marx is right, 
that in many ways people feel their enslavement and they they find religious language to help them out of it, right? Uh, I mean, you see this with the, you know, the, the music, the songs that slaves would sing uh, related to the Exodus and Moses. Yes, it was religious, but also it had something to do with their immediate world and context. Perhaps you might think, though, of all of this idea uh, between, or the, the conversation about idealism and materialism, uh, best understood perhaps by Max Weber, at least in this one way. Weber recognized as a sociologist the ways in which the material world affects our ideas and our ideas then affect the material world. We might think of this in terms of what's called the hermeneutic circle. That is, I am exploring the world, but as I explore the world, I come with my cognitive biases, my ideology, my backstory. And then I allow that to then feed back into all of that. My experiences come back into my mind and I then take them with me as I interpret the next experiences I have. In any case, I think today almost everybody that's working in the, the world of, say, hard sciences is in a sense materialist. And, and this is because materialism works better in the realm of the natural sciences. Uh, this is not a hard and fast thing. There are ways in which the observer brings uh, his or herself to any experiment, any scientific process. But ultimately, taking material seriously, taking the material world seriously, is usually a pretty good starting point for not only the hard sciences, really even, we should say, for history itself. But what this means for history in a, in a broader sense is that uh, perhaps if you remember history as a kid going to high school, you were exposed to what's called the great man theory of history. The great man theory is that somebody comes along with this great idea and then there is a historical movement that moves specifically along the lines of an idealistic viewpoint. This viewpoint shifts over to that viewpoint. This is intellectual history. And it's something th that I spend a lot of time with in my research. And, uh, and I enjoy it. And I think it's really important. But ultimately, uh, in, in the West, the idealists tended towards capitalism. Um, and I think that's a historical reality, but there's probably a reason for this. Um, capitalism makes sense on paper. Uh, at least it did for me when I was when I was young, you know, listening to, to conservative talk radio in high school. I said, well, maybe this is cruel. Uh, maybe it's hard headed, but it's probably right. You know, uh, the only way for the 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 global economy to move forward is capitalism, you know. But when you get to the lived experience of uh, impoverished workers around the world, when you see wage slaves just trying to eke out a, an existence and uh, then having very little time for joy in their lives, that is a, that is a concrete experience that uh, can only really be understood with friends going out and meeting other people, serving uh, through mutual aid, uh, doing doing things within a community to really get to know human beings. Once you do that, you start to realize 
that in many ways, capitalism is hurting a lot of people that we would otherwise love, were it not for the fact that we are some, sometimes so dedicated to the global economy as it is and our possible success within it, that we we fail to see how people are getting crushed within the gears of the machine. In any case, if you read Bakunin on the uh, on the the story of the Bible and on religion, uh, you'll you'll quickly see that he's not going to be very uh, sensitive to your religious sentiments. Uh, but you know, there's another part that's important here and uh, that we should mention. And that is Mikhail Bakunin was anti-Semitic. It seems like people didn't always know this. Um, part of it is that Karl Marx was, was Jewish. And uh, so here is a quote from Statism and Anarchy, page 141. Uh, and this is again from uh, Bakunin. He says, quote, By origin, Marx is a Jew. One might say that he combines all of the positive qualities and all of the shortcomings of that capable race. A nervous man, some say to the point of cowardice, he is extremely ambitious and vain, quarrelsome, intolerant, and absolute, like Jehovah, the god of his ancestors, and like him, vengeful to the point of madness. There is no lie or calumny that he would not invent and disseminate against anyone who had the misfortune to arouse his jealousy or his hatred, which amounts to the same thing. And there is no intrigue so sordid that he would hesitate to engage in it if in his opinion, which is for the most part mistaken, it might serve to strengthen his position and his influence or extend his power. End quote. So um, he is using Marx, uh, Marx's Jewishness as something to to attack him with, right? And, <clears throat> of course, this is very unfortunate. Uh, it makes me not trust the guy. And it's a very shameful thing that he understood so well the importance of freedom for people and yet uh, has this, this negativity, this racism that's still there. Uh, of course, it was common for a lot of people, uh, strangely, sadly common. Uh, but I don't think that means he couldn't have got his way out of it. Uh, and so there were other people that were not anti-Semitic at the time. Uh, the, the, there is one positive aspect to this or a qualification, and that is it seems that he believed that even though he didn't like the Jews and he might not like certain cultures, he believed that every culture had its um, legitimate right to exist. And so uh, and so even though he was at a personal level, not a not a he was a racist, there was a way in which um, he did have an overall political theory that I could still embrace, which is we need to allow cultures to uh, maintain their, their own autonomy and not have some big uh, centralized state come in and, and erase the peculiarities of a culture. Uh, but again, uh, his anti-Semitism is no good. Here's another quote from, uh, from him. Quote, Jews are bourgeois and exploitative from head to foot and instinctively opposed to any real popular emancipation. Every Jew, however enlightened, retains the traditional cult of authority. It is the heritage of his race, the manifest sign of his Eastern origin. The Jew is therefore authoritarian by position, by tradition, and by nature. 
This is a general law and one which admits of very few exceptions. And these very exceptions, when examined closely, confirm the rule. Well, I don't really want to dwell much more on that other than to say uh, this is going on in his mind. And it's important to recognize that hypocrisy and racism. Uh, it's also interesting that, that basically what he's doing is he's putting... Uh, He's taking this thing that, that seems cruel, the economic system of hierarchy and exploitation, and he's pointing out that the Jews are part of that. Now, the historical reason has to do with the European cultures of, of you know, the, the Middle Ages uh, not allowing Jews to enter into the guilds. So they had no access to the standard economy, and so they had to get into things like lending, uh, tinkering, things that were not... Um, on the the kind of, uh, well, they were not central to the economy uh, originally. And therefore, uh, when you're involved in lending, etc., then you will be seen to be a part of the exploitation. And uh, in fact, there would be Jewish people, of course, that would be part of that. Um, Although whenever Europeans decided they didn't want to pay their bills or, you know, uh, pay up on their mortgages, then they could just expel the Jews or uh, or exterminate them on occasion. And so uh, that's 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 that long history of how these things are connected. Um, But in any case, I don't believe that his anti-Semitism was entailed by his political philosophy. It was just who the dude was. Uh, but it is a you know it's a stain on the the, the flow of anarchist history. Uh, it it's not clear that other people other anarchists knew about uh, his anti-Semitism. It wasn't you know for at the forefront of things. But I think another part of it is though that uh, kind of like Martin Luther, who also had uh, his strong anti-Semitism, uh, unfortunately come out in his writings. I think a lot of it has to do with. The, uh, the person who grows up in European Christianity, looking at the Hebrew Bible and, and from the perspective of Christianity, it seems like the Hebrew Bible is more authoritarian at times or, uh, or legalistic uh, at times. And this is partly because Christians tend to come to the conversation with the question of heaven and hell. My, you know, if I do the right thing, am I going to go to heaven? If I do the wrong thing, am I going to go to hell? The Hebrew Bible doesn't have a lot uh, to say about the afterlife. It doesn't talk really about heaven and hell. And so uh, the Hebrew Bible is, as far as I can see it, really talking about the way to structure a society. And if Bakunin would look closely at that, I think he would also see that there's a great deal in the Hebrew Bible that is concerned for the workers, for orphans and for widows. I'll just give one example. Um, well, actually two. Uh, one is this idea of gleaning. Gleaning is uh, where poor people can go and pick up the parts of a field that has been harvested. You know, you pick up some loose beans or corn or, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, they would say, when you're plowing the field, let's say you have a square field or a rectangular field, you're not supposed to, uh, to cut down those corners, right? Like if you imagine you're in a lawnmower and you're not getting those corners, well, you allow poor people to come through and pick up all the things that had fallen or had not been cut down. Uh, this is a way to provide for the destitute. Uh, just one example. Another example is the Sabbath. 
you know, uh, the idea that human beings should not spend every single day of their week in servitude is is an important one. And I think that's a really important one for uh, concerning ourselves with the the un, uh, underclasses of society and those who, who have to slave away, even if they're wage slaves. Uh, and so it's also important to note that a lot of Jewish people were part of these emancipatory movements, uh, specifically anarchism. Uh, and you think maybe, let's say, of the, the Jewish woman, Emma Goldman, uh, and who, who was, uh, was an important uh, voice in America for anarchism. But, uh, you know, she was Jewish. She also would agree with, I think, some of the ways in which the traditionalist Jewish community reinforces hierarchy and, and sexism and, and uptightness about sex and so forth. So, uh, so there's nothing wrong, I think, with asking questions about the ideology that we bring with us, the religion we bring with us as a culture, but certainly uh, to, to put that on a race of people or an ethnicity is, of course, problematic. We'll leave that aside for a moment um, and just kind of go back now to what, what Bakunin was about philosophically as it relates to politics. He studied idealist philosophy, especially Hegel, in Moscow. But then he abandons the whole academic world for political engagement. And he starts out kind of as a, a left-wing nationalist. And I think that's important. In any case, Bakunin gets himself into trouble. Uh, he gets thrown into a dungeon. Um, he gets exiled to Siberia. And, um, and basically, uh, he in, in all of this, he is very politically active. And the good thing that he brings to the conversation is that he warns against what's going to happen with the, the, the Marxists, the Marxist communists, and their statism. He writes, quote, a party dictatorship is all the more dangerous because it appears as a sham expression of the people's will. When the people are being beaten with a stick, they are not much happier if it is called the people's stick. I think that's a good quote because you think about all of these uh, dictators and these authoritarian regimes that have the people in the title, you know, the People's Republic of China, you know. Um, uh, it, it's, it's this very dangerous situation. You see it in, certainly in Cuba, that the revolution becomes everything and everything is, uh, is subordinated to the revolution, which really means everything is subordinated to the, the, the Communist Party, right? And that's, uh, that's a, real, uh, a real danger. Now, during the 19th century, Bakunin was worried about the replacement of religion with uh, what's called spiritualism. You had a lot of people that were still missing out on something in life after they had abandoned tradition religion. And so they turned to seances and esoteric thought and uh, the kind of proto-New Age kind of thinking. Um, and, and Bakunin thinks this is problematic also. It's just a, a, a way for us to salve our, um, our wounded hearts after we realize that the traditional religion isn't working. He writes, quote, While the root of all the absurdities that torment the world, belief in God, remains intact, it will never fail to bring forth new offspring. Thus, at the present time, in certain sections of the highest society, 
spiritualism tends to establish itself upon the ruins of Christianity. What he's worried about is instead of people just giving up on superstition and supernaturalism, people are turning to kind of uh, what seems to be more palatable new forms of spirituality, you know, weighing the soul, that sort of thing. Um, but that that ultimately is not going to be very helpful and it's going to allow people to bypass the hard work of real material freedom. And this is really what the point is for you, dear listener, why I wanted to bring this to you. What Bakunin's argument is, is that, you know, whereas Stacy and I were trying to talk about uh, spiritual emancipation, spiritual anarchism of a sort, that spiritual aspect is something that Bakunin thinks is, uh, is a relic that we can let, let go, that this is a, that this is a problem that this is something that is unnecessary and unhelpful. And I think this is where I, I definitely disagree with him. But of course, I think the key here is to distinguish this idea of a hierarchical religion uh, and, and God in the sky that is, is controlling everything. You distinguish all of that and what that means for politics and life from mysticism. Because he doesn't seem to like mysticism, he writes, quote, These mystical tendencies do not signify in man so much an aberration of mind as a deep discontent at heart. And I kind of understand where he's going with it if he means people doing seances and, and getting into crystal balls and all of that. Uh, but if we think about mysticism in, in a way that I think is appropriate and proper, um, mysticism as a simple recognition of our connectedness to all of existence. We could talk about the source of existence. We can call that source God. We can call the, the whole force behind the world we live in, the Tao. Whatever you want to call it, there is something sublime and transcendent, uh, something that is more than the sum of the parts of this world, it seems. Now, you don't have to believe that, but if you do believe it, I don't think that this takes away at all from our concern for other people, I think, it goes the, I think it goes the other way. Mysticism can also take a form that is atheistic, I think. Uh, we see this in Theravada Buddhism. We see this in scientists who have a kind of secular mysticism where in just beholding a crab nebula through a, 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 a telescope or seeing uh, the cell structure of a, of a new species, of an animal that you found, that there is a kind of a joy, a connectedness, uh, we might call this spiritual. And so I think it's not necessarily a deeply discontented heart, but rather one that's deeply connected to the world. In fact, I find a great mysticism uh, in, in, in working closely with people uh, to better their lives. When, when we were working closely with folks in a village in Guatemala, we were not doing it in a, in a patronizing way, but we were coming alongside of folks. We were sharing our gifts and they were sharing gifts with us. And we were, we were working on putting in water filtration systems for, for people in the village. And, uh, and it, was a very, uh, it was a very positive experience. I might call it a mystical experience. But it didn't require me to, uh, to spend a lot of time talking about dogma. And uh, it by no means kept me from doing good work uh, and, and doing good work with other people towards 
emancipation of human beings. It was actually the motivating thing. In fact, I would say that one of the reasons I am so interested in mysticism and what I want to call a spiritual anarchism is that in many ways, I think that uh, the only way to improve our ethical lives is to cultivate mysticism uh, in, in this way. If I'm hearing in my ears every week on a Sunday morning that if I don't be good, I'm going to be punished, or if I'm going to do these good things, I will be rewarded, as much as I might cognitively assent to that, it's very hard for that to be motivating, at least for me. But if I see in every human being a brother, a sister, a child of mine, somebody who's part of this human family, if I recognize my connection to these other people, if I recognize with Jesus that I should love my neighbor as myself because my neighbor and myself have some connection, have some unity, have some ultimate uh, oneness, then uh, it will be harder for me to harm that other person. It will be harder for me to try to accumulate wealth at their expense. So I just... I just disagree with Bakunin's idea that any kind of spirituality or mysticism is going to be a, a hindrance to freedom and emancipation. In many ways, what Bakunin is thinking is resembling the thought of Ludwig Feuerbach. Feuerbach basically said all theology is is just anthropology. It's what human beings project onto the heavens as ideals. So the ideal man is projected onto the heavens and that becomes Yahweh or Apollo, whatever, right? Um, Ludwig Feuerbach writes this, quote, The gods who have succeeded one another in human belief is nothing, therefore, but the development of the collective intelligence and conscience of mankind. So religion is just a symbolic way of expressing the best thoughts that we could think as human beings. Now, if you really want to get into the theological response to, to, to all of this thinking, you might want to look to uh, Jürgen Moltmann's book, The Crucified God. Uh, Jürgen Moltmann is a German theologian who's pretty groovy. He basically takes on the Freud-Marx-Durkheim problem. Uh, and what this, what this means is Sigmund Freud says that, you know, religion is a crutch Marx basically says that religion is an opiate for the masses. And Durkheim says something like Feuerbach, which is that human beings do not have the language to talk reflectively about sociology up, up until recently. And so we have, we have used religious language to deal with sociological functions in the world. In any case... Um, uh, I think from a theological standpoint, you could turn to that. But our focus right now is on political, economic, and spiritual liberation. And for that, I think um, it's important for us to realize that religion has been very problematic for human beings. Religion has kept people in line. Uh, whether it's Hinduism and the untouchables or... Um, or whatever, right, or uh, Christianity persecuting heretics and non-Christians and, and so forth uh, in, in the service of the state. I think it's important for us 
as believers or unbelievers to all get together and say, religion can be very, very dangerous. Statism can be very, very dangerous. Atheistic ideologies can be very dangerous. Yes, yes, yes. But religion can be very dangerous. And religion's probably been very dangerous in our own lives when religion is used to keep us from expressing and, and experiencing our optimal uh, existence. Um, think about it this way, uh, you know, St. Bob Marley once saying, uh, some people think great God come from the sky, take away everything and make everybody feel high. But if you know what life is worth, you will look for yours on earth and then you will see the light and then you will stand up for your rights. Get up, stand up. Uh, Christianity in the West has indeed served to give people this idea that they don't need to fix their problems in this life because they can, f they can feel really happy that after they die, then they're going to get all the things that they didn't get on earth. Don't worry that you're poor. In heaven, you'll have gold streets, you know, and, and pearls dangling all over the place, you know. Um, and it is interesting that religions tend to, to give people hope of an afterlife that has all the benefits uh, and all of the blessings that they're not allowed to have in this life. Think, for instance, of uh, Islam. There's a lot of language about heaven and paradise being a place where you can indulge in sexuality and even get intoxicated. But in this life, you need to be chaste and, and not drink, right? Um, in, in Calvin, uh, John Calvin, you see a lot of language that heaven has economic kind of has economic benefits that there's a return on investment or that there's somehow these uh, blessings that are set within a, a kind of early capitalist style uh, way of thinking i know capitalism isn't isn't really formed at that point with calvin but it moves in that direction so uh, we we tend to say, don't worry, buddy, you're screwed in this life, you're never gonna be happy in this life, but that's not important. And I think once, once that happens, religion is very dangerous, and it is very much a problem for helping people uh, be, be released from their bondage. I don't have time to replay it, and we've played it on a previous episode, but I encourage you to check out uh, this guy, Todd Snyder, his album is Agnostic Hymns and Stoner Fables, but the song is In the Beginning. I'll put a link to it on the show notes at protectyournoggin.org. Uh, you can find it on YouTube, so if you just want to check that out. In the Beginning is probably the best song for just understanding how religion can serve the wealthy and the exploiters. Uh, but check that out on your own if you have time. In any case, back to Bakunin. Bakunin says the strategy should be for, for liberation, for freedom, not to just talk about ideas, but to actually become the reality of those ideas. That's why he moves away from just studying philosophy to being engaged and active in the world, going to jail, that sort of thing. And I think this is the most viable and helpful thing that he brings, that in many ways, especially I've been prey to this, being an academic, we can spend a lot of our time just talking about the ideal situation for politics and economics and never really ask what to do about our lives this week, this day, uh, this year, right? And so becoming the reality 
of our philosophy, embodying our, our philosophy is really important. And I think I agree, I definitely agree with that. I also agree with Bakunin's idea that we should oppose vanguardism. That is where you get, you know, the, the Lenins of the world, the, the Castros of the world, people that are going to be authoritarians for a little while so that later on we can get rid of authoritarianism. It never worked. Bakunin said it wasn't going to work. And what's unfortunate about it is the fact that it doesn't work. We knew it wasn't going to work, or you know, you should have known. A lot of the time in the 21st century, I know this is something I learned growing up, we say, well, we'd love to help the poor people of the world. We'd love to help the workers, but it just doesn't work, right? Look at China, look at the Soviet Union, look at Cuba, look at North Korea. You don't want to live there, right? Nobody wants to live in these communist countries. Therefore, socialism doesn't work, right? We fail to tend, you know, we tend to fail to look in the capitalist American scene to Scandinavia, where we have high rates of, uh, of happiness. <laughs> um, there are downsides to state socialism, make no mistake, and, and I don't advocate for that. But that's a different kind of thing. And of course, uh, the libertarian side, libertarian socialism, aka anarchism, should not be judged as having failed because, th because the tankies failed. You know, anarchists never wanted to really go that route. And then ultimately the anarchists were persecuted, killed and imprisoned by these vanguardist uh, Marxists. So they're just a different, it's a different thing. And yet people tend to lump it all together and say anybody who's interested in caring for the needy and caring for the workers' rights uh, or immigrant refugee rights, uh, they're all on the left and that doesn't work. Well, one of the reasons it doesn't work is because both capitalists and Marxists tend to, uh, to crush the freedom-loving individuals um, and crucify them at times, right? Uh, Bakunin advocates for federalism. Now, this is a weird word in America. In America, anarchism is a bad word for most people. It's associated with chaos and brutality and violence. Uh, and, and, and lawlessness, uh, which, which is not necessarily the best way to understand it, of course, but I understand uh, why people think that. It's also a problem in America when we talk about federalism. Federalism, I think, is a very helpful term and something for us all to think about if you're, if you're at all interested in exploring libertarian socialism and anarchism. Um, people t sometimes think, oh, there's no organization in anarchism. There's no... Uh, there's no sanity in society, there's no order. No, the, the idea is local, very local uh, government. And maybe government's not the word, but uh, direct democracy. So at the local level, people in a village are making decisions about their own lives and the lives of their community, and they are connected to the rest of the world through a federation or a federal system. So federalism is the idea that you have all of these connected um, regions. You have different places where people are responsible for their own lives. They are free, but that they are living better in mutuality with the rest of the world uh, in this system. Now, the reason 
we tend to not like uh, the, the libertarians tend not to like the word federal in America is because we associate it with a centralized federal government. So we've got federal government versus state government, right? And so it's really funny for for libertarians on the left to to think about the United States, these local states, as being the state. The state's a bad word, really, for uh, for anarchists. And federal's a good word, and yet federal tends in America to be the central federal government that's really, really big and inefficient. So kind of, if you wouldn't mind, just setting that aside for a second. Don't be thinking about federalism as the federal government, but maybe closer to the Swiss cantons where you have Bern and Geneva and, um, and, and Zurich, for instance, all having this relationship with one another, but having uh, a rejection of empire and having more of a, of a local government. Certainly those are insufficient, uh, insufficiently free. You know, Geneva was kind of a theocracy in the 16th century. It was insufficiently free, but was moving away and arguably in the right direction, away from hierarchy and imperialism, right? So uh, federalism, it's, it's just really important to realize that there is organization in anarchist thought. It's just going to be at the local level, and it's going to be people making the direct decisions about their lives, not having the sham government where I elect somebody to do my thinking for me or to make the decisions for me. That's the thing that's rejected. We human beings should make decisions directly about our lives. In any case, Bakunin reads the fall uh, of Adam and Eve as this uh, terrible, terrible story where when, when Eve wants to have knowledge, God's mad about this, right? So being freed, setting yourself free is what the gods don't want you to do. And more importantly, and this is where he's kind of right, <laughs> the myth of original sin does tend to lead towards more authoritarian worldviews. We see this in social psychology. People who have a very low view of human beings, we think that human beings are basically evil or wicked or fallen, tend to be more on the side of statism, saying, well, because human beings are wicked, we need a strong government to keep them in line through fear of punishment and hope of reward. It's worth noting that uh, in Judaism, the idea that... Um, that Adam and Eve's fall created a, a kind of um, uh, horrific uh, hellboundness to all humanity, or more importantly, the idea that God now is intending to send everybody to hell that is a descendant of Adam and Eve, that's not really in Judaism, right? It's not in Judaism. It's a thing, of, it's a thing in Christianity. But it is uh, it is interesting that after Augustine, St. Augustine, and this idea that even babies that aren't baptized go straight to hell, um, this allows, it, it really does allow for, for more um, authoritarian wickedness, I think, to happen. Because ultimately, if every baby that isn't baptized is going to hell, then it's probably okay for the government to make sure babies get baptized and that means it's probably okay for the government to execute people who don't baptize their babies, like the Anabaptists say. Um, it's a sick logic, but it kind of works if you, if you operate from that perspective. And 
Um, whatever you want to think about original sin, I think the emphasis is is important for all all people, even Christians. Uh, in fact, let me pause here for Christians especially. Uh, there was a there was a guy named Matthias Flacius Illyricus, who was a Lutheran, and he said that human beings are basically evil. We are we are naturally evil, and this was rejected rightly by the rest of the Lutherans. They said, no, 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 no. Human beings aren't basically evil. Human beings are basically good, but human beings are corrupted. So we're a beautiful thing. We are beautiful creatures. We are beautiful uh, embodiments of God's design and love, say, um, within the Christian theological framework. But uh, despite all that, what makes us so tragic is that our minds, our wills, and emotions turn in on on themselves. So we start to not see our connectedness to our brothers and sisters in this world. And so we act selfishly and we hurt them for our own gain. But we are not essentially evil. We're, again, essentially good. And what makes it so sad is that it's we've been thoroughly tainted, that you know the infection gets in all of us. And the question is, uh, how did that happen, right? No, if you go back to the Jesus Anarchy um, uh, podcast we did a couple uh, episodes ago, I would argue that one of the things that's going on in the narrative of Adam and Eve is the reflection on the fact that as human beings left hunter-gatherer society, once they left their harmonious relationship to nature and started farming and creating civilizations and creating these hierarchical power structures, that's the fall. And that then, as we are stuck within that system that was created millennia ago, we find ourselves acting in wicked ways because it's very difficult to be ethical within the system. In other words, uh, I would say that uh, it's important for us to reflect not only on our individual corruption, but the fact that even just generally good people thrust into structural sin, thrust into a society that is just one big rat race uh, until you, you basically from kindergarten until you, until you retire, um, that that has a, a profoundly corrupting effect as well on human beings. And there's that you know, relationship one way, one way or the other. Now, there are three ways, Bakunin says, to escape our crappy existence under capitalism. The first is to self-medicate. Essentially, go get drunk. And we do this, a lot of us do this, right? Our lives are screwed. It is very difficult to make ends meet in this world. Certainly difficult to make ends meet in this world without being corrupt, without being a swindler. Well, the first way uh, to escape our crappy existence is to, to get high, to drink ourselves into a stupor. The second way is to get drunk on God, is the church. Right. So some people go for booze. Some people go for religion. And in fact, in the 19th century, those were the two great competing forces. You go go to the saloon, go to the revival, the tent revival, say, or something. Uh, but the third is revolution. And so for Bakunin, self-medication, booze and the church are both options that are uh, inferior to revolution and unhealthy and unhelpful because they they sidetrack us from revolution, from overthrowing the chains of our masters. And so that's why, again, you'll always see or you're often going to see in anarchist circles 
posters or flags that say no gods, no masters. Uh, that very often the gods are associated with mastery. It certainly was true for the early Christians. The early Christians were called atheists, by the way, because they refused to accept uh, the, the traditional Roman gods. And specifically, they refused to venerate uh, Caesar as a god. You see these things kind of connecting. Or if you go back to the podcast I did about uh, the Jesus anarchy and, and the Bible really reflecting on a rejection of the Near Eastern uh, Neo-Babylonian god kings, there is a way in which Pharaoh and Caesar and, and, and really any ruler uh, in, in the West has said they get to tell us what to do because they are either descended from the gods or God put them into place, right? Um, anytime that happens, you can see how religion and the state do work together to exploit and to oppress people. Um, and so for Bakunin, he's got this interesting quote that I think is worth thinking about. Quote, the richer heaven became, the more wretched became humanity and earth. This is idea that uh, by really focusing on this afterlife business, we can detract or d distract people from the ways in which the church and state are conspiring uh, to enslave us, essentially. He continues, quote, Christianity is precisely the religion par excellence because it exhibits and manifests to the fullest extent the very nature and essence of every religious system, which is the impoverishment, enslavement, and annihilation of humanity for the benefit of divinity. Now, this is, I think, helpful, at least as a thought experiment. Um, does God need you to worship him or them or her? You know, do, do, does the deity you serve, do they, like, do they thrive off of your bowing? Or is bowing something that's done just in reverence for something beautiful? I'll give you an example. Uh, sometimes... Um, Zen, uh, Soto Zen, the Buddhists, after meditating, will, uh, they will, they'll bow and then they will rise, but they will often bow to animals um, to recognize the spark of, of the holy, if you will, within the physical world. Uh, there are Cantonese men who will tap two little fingers in a, in a way kind of like... Um, recognizing the loftiness and the sublime nature of, of their friends as they're having coffee together. Um, that said, the idea that Christianity is the religion par excellence, you know, it, that's probably something that makes sense to him given his experience in, in Europe, right? I mean, yeah, that would make sense there. Uh, but I think uh, as much as you could say that Christendom or, or, or modern Christianity or 19th century, century Christianity did take that form. Uh, it's not necessarily the case that this, the teachings of Jesus would have resembled any of that. And also, I think one of the problems for Bakunin is he really doesn't understand the Eastern approaches to what we call religion uh, and doesn't really understand the, uh, the way that it works. That is, he, he looks around at the world and he rightly will be confused because, you know, if you look at Buddhists and, and Taoists in, in, in China, in Japan, they don't necessarily live or act in ways that are liberating. Uh, and sometimes 
Buddhists have been disengaged. Uh, uh, there is a more modern form um, of engaged Buddhism, engaged Buddhism that is more activistic, but it's also possible uh, that you will find, and not just possible, you will find over the many centuries that that corrupt regimes can exist alongside of, of monasteries and that sometimes Buddhist monks would escape the world that was suffering uh, and would not engage in activism, say. Um, but nonetheless, recognizing the Buddha nature in all things and therefore in all people, I think would definitely work towards what Bakunin wants rather than against it. And what does he want? He wants a world of, uh, of mutual support, Right? He wants a world that is not hierarchical, not domineering. These are all things that certainly Buddhists could get behind, the original Jesus people would get behind, and, and the Taoist anarchists would get behind. And of course, in uh, some forms of Buddhism and Taoism, you don't even need to have what we call theistic belief. You don't have to believe in some entity in the heavens that's called God. You can, but you don't need to. He also says, uh, Bakunin says, quote, all religions are cruel, all founded on blood, for all rest principally on the idea of sacrifice, end quote. Now, this is an interesting thing to, to look at for a moment. Uh, first of all, uh, the idea that all religions are cruel is not true. Uh, you have Jainism, J-A-I-N, or Jainism. Um, you have... Uh, Sikhism, S-I-K-H-ism, I think these are good examples of uh, religions that are against cruelty, that are really dedicated to opposing cruelty. Certainly, uh, Buddhism is not founded on blood, nor is Taoism, nor is Confucianism, I guess, but that's a whole different thing. Uh, so, uh, and, and in many ways, uh, okay, so what he's talking about is maybe the Abrahamic faiths or faiths that come out of the ancient Near East, uh, when, when, when you're talking about religions being founded on blood. And then you could also include some forms of Hinduism. In India, we think of you know, everybody being always uh, you know, vegetarian, maybe because we've run into uh, bhakti yoga pr practitioners of some sect in America where they are vegetarian, but not all Hindus, not all Indians are vegetarian. <laughs> And it depends on caste sometimes or sect. But uh, there, there have been animal sacrifices all around the world in proto-Zoroastrianism and in some forms of Indian religion. That said, uh, it is typically this kind of more Western way of thinking, especially Christian way of thinking. And this is important. The idea that God is in the sky and he basically wants to send us all to hell, but he's going to hurt his self, but he's, he's going to kill his son, ultimately, so that he doesn't kill us. That's how I heard it. That's how often Christianity teaches it uh, in the West. It's called the vicarious atonement or substitutionary atonement. And the idea is that God cannot tolerate our existence uh, and we will go to hell unless Jesus goes to hell on our behalf, either literally, as in the Apostles' Creed, or figuratively, as, as John Calvin would say, that, that Jesus suffers hell on the cross. But um, that's not the only way that Christians have seen it. The Franciscans did not see things in those 
those ways. Um, and it's not an Eastern Orthodox thing really either. Uh, in the Eastern Church, there's much more of an emphasis on Jesus uh, being born for our sins, growing up for our sins, preaching for our sins, dying for our sins, rising for our sins. In other words, it's not just that God needs to have somebody suffer, but rather by God entering into the world, that's the inevitable response of corrupt society and human beings. But there's another thing that's important to note about the history of religion and the phenomenology of religion, and that is, while it's true that there are some contexts, like Protestant Christianity, where there needs to be a sacrifice, where something suffers, where something dies, where something is receiving wrath, very often in cultures around the world, sacrifice is not about that. It's not about the suffering of the animal. In fact, very often they will give the animal some kind of uh, sedative or some kind of intoxicant so that they will not suffer as much during the sacrifice. Um, and, and there may be emphasis on, you know, humane way of dispatching the animal. But the fact is cultures have been eating animals all around the world. So if in your culture you kill an animal to eat, then what's going on in the sacrifice is not primarily this idea that you need to kill something, but rather uh, it's this idea that we, uh, we are sharing in this meal with the divine. So the gods are invited into participation in this sacrificial meal. We're, we're doing something that we do in hospitality with anybody. Somebody comes over, you serve them some tea, you make dinner, you share a meal together. So uh, Bakunin then is at the level of the history of religion, just mistaken, I think, about the nature of sacrifices. Now, in all of this, though, I think it's important for us to, to just kind of recenter ourselves. Very often, if we come at a conversation with uh, the baggage of having our own identity tied up in the conversation, uh, it's going to be harder for us to, to really think clearly about it. Uh, what do I mean? If we approach Bakunin's God in the state as believers, as religious people, we tend to say, ah, I am religious, so I take offense at this and I'm going to reject what's being said. But what I think is healthier for all people is to take each part on its own merits or demerits, right? Um, we reject some things like the anti-Semitism. We respect some things that are insights like that Marx was, was wrong about the dictatorship of the proletariat. So we just, you know, take and, uh, take and choose the things that we need. And, uh, and I think that's very appropriate uh, for anybody. But ultimately... I don't want us to get past this conversation without recognizing that in the 20th century in particular, started in the 19th century, the evangelicalism, Christianity in America at least, was very explicitly taken over by the wealthy. Yes, Charlemagne brings church and state into alliance. This has happened throughout time. But there is something I think uniquely diabolical about the way in which wealthy people, business interests in the 20th century actually sought out and invested in evangelical leaders who would be pro-business, pro-capitalist, anti-socialism. And by socialism, I just mean any 
perspective that thinks it's important for all human beings to be cared for. Old people, disabled people, refugees, children. I, I, I as I, a, a human being, a mystic, uh, cannot fathom how it would be possible for us to, to be okay with all the suffering in the world. I can't fathom how it's possible for Christians to look at kids in cages or uh, starving people around the world and say, they don't concern me. One of the ways, <clears throat> however, that this was accomplished was by getting people in America to think that Jesus was a capitalist, that Jesus was on the side of the powerful business interests, and that everybody... Uh, that advocates for socialism is ultimately ungodly and atheistic. That way of thinking has really hindered us, I think, in, in moving towards a more just and equitable society. Especially after the Red Scare of the mid-20th century, people afraid, I think rightly, of the Soviet Union. What happened was uh, there was an association between atheism and communism. And so you start to see in God we trust comes into the money. You see uh, one nation under God enter into the Pledge of Allegiance. And so uh, socialism in general is seen as an atheistic world ideology. And that's, that's not necessarily the case. In fact, in the early 20th century, many Christians assumed that they would be on the left because they were followers of Jesus. Many were explicitly socialists. There were certainly some Christian anarchists. But generally speaking, uh, church leaders working on behalf of workers who were getting exploited uh, seemed to be the right alliance. And this eventually gets shifted over later in the 20th century. So what am I trying to say? You don't have to agree with Bakunin that God always is a problem for freedom or that religion is always a problem uh, for, uh, for emancipation. But it has to be on our minds. We have to be vigilant, I think, all the time um, that religion and specifically our religion might be serving to oppress people rather than to liberate people. And if, if that's the case, then the only way to really escape from the, the wickedness of society or to help heal the injustices of society would be to move away from authoritarian religion and specifically any authoritarian religion that emphasizes political authoritarianism or economic injustice. I just think it, it, it is important for us to reconsider our allegiances within churches and, uh, and if our churches are supporting the wealthy uh, opposing the poor, and we read Jesus, we read the, the, the epistle of James, I think it's really important for us to, to repent of that. And it's very hard to repent because if you look at American Christianity, what you see is quite a lot of uh, relationship, pr pretty healthy relationship between money, affluence, and the church. Think about Hillsong. Uh, and, and there's a recent documentary about this out. Um, think about the Joel Osteens. But then also think about all of the good American churches supporting the status quo, uh, maybe smaller-sized churches around the country. It's very hard for us to think 
that Jesus cares for the poor when our churches don't tend to. And you might say, wait, wait, but our church has a a canned food drive. It's not enough for churches to dole out compassionate, you know, tokenistic meals on occasion. And in fact, it's harmful if we indulge in acts of charity that make us feel good, but we refuse to allow people to empower themselves and to be free and to have enough money to to feed their kids and have health care, right? For us to not care about the system and just amuse ourselves by putting 50 cents in somebody's cup who's begging along the side of the road, that's, that's not enough. That's not spiritual transformation. And so um, I wanted us to, to look together at Bakunin again to say that while there are these spiritual traditions, Jesus tradition and Taoism that advocate for the poor, for workers, for uh, a way of non-domination. It is true that Bakunin is, is onto something when he recognizes the collaboration between ecclesial or, or church power structures and political and economic power structures. The church, the state, and the high priest are all kind of conspiring uh, to exploit. Uh, and I'm saying this archetypally, you know, from, from you know, time immemorial, you see these powers collaborating. And as I've said many times, I think that the whole thing about Jesus, the thing that was so interesting about Jesus is his rejection, as, uh, as narrated in Matthew, uh, where Jesus is tempted by uh, the devil in the wilderness. He's tempted into money, power, and glory. Money and wealth, power and political authoritarianism, and glory I associate with religious stuff. Jesus rejects all of that. And it is no virtue, it is no ethical or moral virtue to, uh, to embrace any of those as, uh, as helpful for the individual human beings that, that we care about. Uh, around the world. We think it does sometimes because we're scared. We get scared. I think right now we're living in a time that's scary. And so we want somebody to take care of us. We want the old man in the sky to take care of us. And the old man in the, st- the, old man in the sky can appoint some old man in the, the Capitol building to take care of us. And uh, we can have religious leaders uh, taking care of us because we're scared and we don't know what to do. We don't know what to think about all this. It is scary. It's hard to figure out how to be free. It's hard to even take those first steps uh, towards being free. Uh, but but here at Protect Your Noggin, we, we love you no matter what your religious or anti-religious position is, as long as we're all working towards uh, full spectrum emancipation. That is freedom for all of us. Uh, freedom to believe, freedom to not believe, but freedom from control uh, of a hierarchical and authoritarian uh, form. And I guess because so many people are religious in America, it's important for us who come from religious traditions, for those of us who are in positions of leadership within religious circles, to actually be part of the solution instead of blindly supporting 
systems of exploitation. Um, we don't have to do this with liberal guilt or fear. We can do this joyfully and playfully. As Emma Goldman once said, if the revolution doesn't allow me to dance, it's not my revolution. So friends, be, uh, be in a place of joy, even amidst all of these uncertainties of life. Uh, enjoy where you are right now. Enjoy the loved ones that are surrounding you right now. And as you participate in religious practices, perhaps, ask yourself critically, what, uh, what is helpful for me here as a way of uniting me to my fellow human beings in, in solidarity and in mutual aid and love? Well, then keep that as you like. And if anything is supporting... Uh, the exploitation of others, and ultimately, therefore, your exploitation, shed it. Walk away. Let it be. You don't have to burn bridges. You don't have to get angry. You don't have to be, you know, pissed off all the time at your religious upbringing. But you don't have to stay locked in it. The door is open. You're ready to step out. You're ready to step out and keep your spirituality but let go of the fear. You're ready to go and work towards the liberation of your own self and others, but you're a little scared to do it without the training wheels? Just take the training wheels off. It's so much more fun. Friends, thanks for being with me. Thanks for letting me tell you a little bit about Bakunin and um, his ideas about God and the state. And as always, peace upon peace to you. so much friends for joining us for this episode of the protect your noggin podcast you want to join in on the conversation we'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show you can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button and don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending you can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message please also follow us on twitter at the pynp and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said that wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? That's because you found this letter low too much.